Al-Jazeera podcast. How can culture be best preserved? The United Nations is holding meetings to discuss how to preserve and to promote ancient cultures from around the world. From falconry to Zambian dance, truffle hunting to Singapore's hawker carts, traditions are being considered for inclusion on the intangible cultural heritage list. So, how could it ensure such practices survive for generations to come? I'm Adrian Finnegan, and this is the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. So, let's bring in our guests for today's discussion. From Paris, we're joined by Juliet Hopkins, Associate Program Specialist with UNESCO's Living Heritage Cultural Sector. From Lagos, Malara Wood, a writer, arts editor, and cultural activist. And also in Paris, Karen Archer, Deputy Director of the French Heritage Society. Welcome to you all. Juliet, let's start with you. What exactly constitutes an intangible cultural heritage? Why is it so important to protect them? And how do you go about doing so? Hi, everyone, and thanks for your question. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. So intangible cultural heritage is different to tangible heritage in a number of important ways. Of course, on the one hand, we're dealing with physical sites and objects. And on the other hand, we're referring to cultural practices and expressions that communities pass on from generation to generation and form part of our cultural traditions. But the second important difference, I would say, is in the approach to safeguarding itself and how we safeguard it. So intangible cultural heritage is very much alive for communities. It's not fixed in the past, but what's important is this idea of intergenerational transmission. So it has a continued social function and cultural meaning for communities. And it's something we like to say everyone has, it's relevant to everyday life, and it shapes our identity, how we understand ourselves, how we understand each other, and how we understand um, the world around us more generally. And it's in this sense, this dynamic nature of intangible cultural heritage, which is really important to remember. Um, it's extremely important in terms of how each generation adapts their own cultural heritage to respond to the evolving needs and realities that they have. So how do we go about safeguarding it, which is the second part of the question. Um, and part of, so the, the 2003 Convention for Safeguarding Intangible Cultural Heritage is um, an international instrument which is aiming at safeguarding this heritage. It came into force in 2006 and it's celebrating its 20th anniversary next year. Um, its purpose, as defined in the text of the convention, is to safeguard this heritage, raise awareness about it, ensure respect for it, and provide for international cooperation between states towards its safeguarding. And um, I wanted to underline this um, aspect about promoting respect for the diversity of intangible cultural heritage, which is what the convention sets out to do. And it's also about, in that way, learning respect um, for other people's ways of lives, for each other, in all of our similarities and differences. Uh, Malara Wood in, in, in Lagos, tell us about your work concerning the protection of uh, intangible cultural heritage in, in Nigeria and, and what you see as the main threats to this heritage there. Uh, yes, uh I'm very happy to be here. Thank you uh, to everyone. And yes, I've worked as a journalist, uh, editor. I've done uh, curatorial work in places like the Oshun Oshogo Sacred Grove, which is a 
uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site, and I've also visited other places. And the threats, especially increasingly, has to do with apathetical uh, leadership and uh, a, a lot of uh, policy gaps which uh, don't uh, protect these places. So the Oshun Oshogbo Secret Grove in, uh, in the southwest part of Nigeria, for instance, is uh, so crucial to uh, the community, to the history of uh, the people, to the founding of the town, and is the center for a world-famous festival, the Oshun Shogo Festival, which takes place annually August every year. But now that place is actually threatened uh, in terms of the environment by illegal mining uh, that is rampant in towns along the route of the river because the Oshoshogo uh, sacred grove has as its um, heart the sacred uh, river, Oshun, which is also tied to the beliefs of the people, to the history and, uh, and all of that. And also, not just for Nigeria, but all the way in the diaspora, uh, people in Brazil, Cuba, parts of the United States, for instance, come to this place as a commemoration of identity and belonging and uh, ancestral ties. And because of the illegal mining, uh, the water is being polluted. Uh, this is water, for instance, that people, that the adherents of the goddess believe uh, has healing powers. They call it herb. It's like a, a herbal uh, mixture for them. But when it's polluted with all of these uh, metals and the color, the characterization, everything changes. Um, so that is a real threat. And um, so there is the need definitely to continue to safeguard places like that. Um, last year, for instance, I visited a historical site uh, in, in, in Oyo State here in Nigeria, uh, which it, it, it's like saying like parts of Rome mm. being endangered by desertification and artifacts being destroyed. And it's from these artifacts that you actually understand the traditions of the people, the songs, the the stories, yeah. uh, the beliefs of, of, of the people, okay. and how that ties from the previous generations to even challenges that we're facing today, right. definitely. Fascinating. Uh, Karen Archer in, in Paris, you're the Deputy Director of the French Heritage Society. Tell us about the work of your society then in protecting uh, the cultural heritage, the intangible cultural heritage of France. Yes, well, thank you. I'm very pleased to be with you today as well. We deal both intangible and intangible. We, we raise funds to protect historic monuments, so for the restoration, the preservation, uh, historic parks and gardens as well. But touching back on what uh, the previous speaker said, there's also an intangible quality because there's a transmission. You can consider perhaps the, the, the bricks and stones as the, as the framework. It's the testimony of past civilizations, of craftsmen, of artisans who have come before us. But there's also kind of a living heritage to transmit this today, not only to restore it, but to give a vocation to these monuments so that they're living, so that they're open to the public. Um, and also the question of parks and gardens is very important now as well. Um, which also has a role to play in sustainable development, in bi biodiversity, 
and of course with the restoration in carrying on uh, traditional crafts which are in France what we call also patrimoine vivant, so living heritage, which are the skills that are transmitted from generation to generation as well. Uh, Juliet, uh, one quick question. Uh, uh, I just want to come back to pinning down what constitutes an intangible cultural heritage. What about dying languages uh, and religions? Are they eligible for protection? And what happens in the case of controversial cultural practices. Uh, are they still considered for inclusion? So the question, thank you for the question. So the question on languages and religions. Now, this was discussed a lot in the beginning of the um, convention in the drafting of the text itself. And with regard to languages, um, we it is not a language itself that um, is defined as intangible cultural heritage in the convention under Article 2 but it's how it was related to these oral expressions and these practices. So um, we see language as a vehicle of the intangible cultural heritage. So it's a way that it can be transmitted to generation to generation. In terms of religions, of course, there are very many different aspects of intangible cultural heritage that are related to organized religions. Um, they might be particular social practices or rituals, um, which come from you know, religious traditions and origins, but a religion in an, in an organized religion itself um, does not fall under the convention um, definition of intangible cultural heritage. Now, in terms when it comes to kind of more controversial um, uh, elements or inscriptions, um, again, if we go back to Article 2, it states that all intangible cultural heritage falling under this convention must be in line with um, international human rights instruments. So any practice or tradition which might um, not be aligned or might conflict with such international instruments does not fall under the definition of intangible cultural heritage in the 2003 convention. Uh, Juliet, uh, what does it mean then for a community when a practice is given UNESCO intangible cultural heritage status? And, and, and does that status have a role to play in, in, in bringing disparate communities uh, together? Thanks. That's a very good question. So um, just to go back to the, the lists of the conventions, so um, how it is recognized as intangible cultural heritage. So we have two lists. There's the representative list of intangible cultural heritage. And this is made up of elements of intangible cultural heritage um, that demonstrate the diversity of this heritage and that help raise awareness of its importance. Um, and then the second one is in the urgent safeguarding list. And this is a list which is um, about intangible cultural heritage that is identified as being particularly at risk. And the purpose of this list is to mobilize international awareness around the element in danger of disappearing and encourage states to introduce specific actions and plans to address these risks. So this might be um, in designing uh, promotion programs or education programs around the element, in creating particular policy environments which would help those elements survive. So to the community themselves, um, inscription in one of these lists can bring a lot of awareness to their intangible cultural heritage, brings greater recognition. It um, can help um, kind of boost um, international yeah, a recognition around this element and provide the frameworks for introducing these safeguarding plans and actions. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Malara. Um, but we should also remember that these lists are not an end in itself. So it's really the start of um, or the launch pad, okay. you know, for further safeguarding actions between states and communities for future generations. Malara, one of the things that, that, that interests me about, about the, the lists that we're talking about here is, is, is the, the, the shift that has been towards more environmental concerns uh, recently. You talked about uh, about the pollution coming from these illegal mines. How much of your work then directly concerns the environment? And, and have you noticed this, this shift towards uh, protecting uh, the environment in, uh, when considering intangible cultural heritage? Indeed, indeed. Um, I loved the phrase used by the speaker in Paris, a living heritage. And the Oshun that I mentioned, for instance, is a place where a living heritage is in practice every day through the songs, through the practices, and all the people that, and so many communities come into this place and just keeping it alive every day. And it is threatened by uh, the environment and by uh, the, the um, nonchalance of uh, persons in authority who don't uh, basically take uh, seriously these threats to these places. So for that, there's environmental pollution and also not just um, a threat to the site immediately, but also to the water, which the, the people bathe in and drink and all of that, the holy water, so to speak. And then this river um, actually uh, flows through so many, up to 20, 30 different towns and communities. So it's a threat to a lot of people and to their relationship to history as represented by this site. So increasingly, environment is a, a concern and there's a need internationally to, to have um, basically a, a, a cohesive uh, message about what national governments should be doing to complement the, um, the efforts of uh, an organization such as UNESCO, for instance, and also for activists on the ground. And like I mentioned also, the other side, desertification, uh, illegal coal industry, uh, heritage trees being felled in, in places where people and songs and beliefs and all of that have thrived and where uh, not just um, artists and activists, but also archaeologists are trying to piece together the, the history of the people. And um, the importance of um, uh, 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 intangible heritage is um, last year I was in Ketu in the Republic of Benin, which is uh, a neighboring country to Nigeria here, to observe the Gelede performance, which uh, it's a masked play, Gelede play, and it it's, a, it's it recognized as an intangible heritage by UNESCO, and it, in, it includes the theatrical performance, which when you see it in action, you realize that this is a, a theatrical tradition which does not stem from the Western tradition. It is of the people. And you see community cohesion and the modes of expression of the people, the way that the people see themselves. Mm. And I have had, I had to go from Nigeria to go and see it in the Republic of Benin. Where, and Gelede is a tradition of the Yoruba people, and most Yoruba people are in Nigeria. Yeah. But because we do not have that kind of production, uh, uh, protection for Gelede, say in Nigeria, for instance, it is preserved in a, in a more potent form mm. in Ketu 
and I have to go there to go and see it. But if we have more protection, um, then we can have okay. these uh, intangible heritage yeah. be really impactful uh, in, in lives and communities. Karen Archer in Paris. I mean, Yes, it's wonderful to, to be able to, to protect this cultural heritage, and, and it's the right thing to do. But how much does it cost, and, and, and who pays? I mean, they're, they're in France. Um, uh, the country seems particularly passionate about uh, certain aspects of it, its cultural heritage. Do you have any, any problem uh, finding donors there, there in France? Are you perhaps more fortunate in France than elsewhere in the world? Well, it's, it's a mixed system because traditionally France has been a very centralized uh, country in terms of culture, in terms of uh, historic monuments and that, but that is changing and they're following more along the Anglo-Saxon model now, typically, typically with incentives uh, like in the United States for private donors. So there is still state aid, quite an important amount of state aid, but there's a mixture of private donors, of foundations, of companies that are interested in heritage as well. And as far as French Heritage Society is concerned, we have, um, we were actually founded to, to help incite American uh, donors to, to uh, give to France to maintain its cultural heritage. And in, in the United States, this model of giving and tax deductibility and favorable laws um, is, is very much the norm. And I think that's being practiced much more in France as well, in a way because it's so expensive. So the government has to find other ways. Um, they're trying to incentivize private donors and even individuals as well with things like crowdfunding, um, where everyone can feel that they have a stake in preserving their heritage. They can, they can be invested in the monuments they choose to support. And it's not just for an elite. Um, and it's not removed from their everyday lives. Juliet, what are the main threats to intangible cultural heritage and to what extent does it rely, does the protection of it rely upon international cooperation? Thanks for the question. So in terms of the main threats um, to intangible cultural heritage, we see a lot of issues around um, younger generations perhaps losing interest in their um, heritage or um, issues around urban to rural migration. Um, as was mentioned before, there might be threats relating to um, issues around changes to the environment, biodiversity loss. For instance, there might be a particular um, material from the environment that may be needed in a practice and, you know, that species might not be available anymore. But that's not to say that um, the intangible cultural heritage will necessarily disappear because we also have to recognise its adaptive capacity. So uh, the ability of communities to adapt their practices to the changing environment, for instance, they might replace that material with another material, which would still have significance to those communities concerned. Um, and international cooperation can play a very important role in raising awareness of those threats further and kind of gathering international support around them to take action um, in terms of developing specific safeguarding plans to address those threats. Uh, Juliet, I can understand the need to protect inherited cultural traditions, but, but why does UNESCO mm -hmm. consider it important to protect contemporary practices as well? So contemporary practices, um, there is 
when I when I mentioned that it's you know a living heritage, it still has significance to the communities concerned. So these practices are passed down from generation to generation, but that's not to say that they're stuck in the past or that they're frozen in the past. And communities can still adapt those to their changing needs or situations so that it continues to have relevance in their lives. Um, so that's an, a very important kind of um, notion in the convention. And it's perhaps different to these um, um, discourses around protection and preservation of heritage, because we understand that um, heritage um, is not frozen in time but continues to evolve with generations. And that's how we can see that it can contribute to some of these contemporary issues still. And it can also be innovative in nature in providing you know, newer solutions to some of these challenges around biodiversity loss, um, climate change adaption, disasters reduction, and things like that. That has been a fascinating discussion. There, I'm afraid we must end. Thank you all for being with us. Juliet Hopkins in Paris, Malara Wood in Lagos, and Karen Archer also in Paris. And that's it for this edition of the Inside Story podcast. The episode was produced by Damien Lay, Usama Alani, Gabriela Faber, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani. The program was edited by Leroy Messina, Lyndon Guyon, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday. Tuesday.